1: Hi, this is Colin. So why are we doing this show today? Uh, This is a show that aired uh, a few months ago, uh, but Bill Griffith is back in town. He's going to be appearing at the Mark Twain house tonight. Uh, So this is a show. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story of uh, his mother uh, and the secret that she had for a very long time. Uh, Bill is, of course, the cartoonist who created Zippy the Pinhead and lots of other underground work. Uh, So he unfolds this story for you uh, in what amounts to a graphic novel. uh, And he tells this amazing story. I don't want to say too much, really, because (laughs) it's better if Bill tells it to you. But um, so so listen to this uh, and then consider also going to see Bill tonight uh, at the Mark Twain house. That's at 7 p.m. here in Hartford. Uh, All right. Here we go with Bill Griffith.
0: Okay, kid, what do you got for me? Max McGreenberg Quality Syndicated Features is looking for the hit comic strip of 1947. There's eight newspapers in New York, and they're all buying. Give me your best stuff.
2: Mr. Greenberg, I've been working on one called Old Opie Dildock
0: and the Okie Dokes. Old Opie Dildock and the Okie Dokes? It takes place in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages? What am I, kid? Sir Walter Ivanhoe? Look at these panels. you got a bunch of talking trees. That's right, sir. The, the trees, that they all have different personalities. You know who's got different personalities? My wife, all day long. She's gonna say, Max, how are we gonna pay the bills with talking maple trees? Uh, okay, how about this one? Danny Dugan and Dixie Dreamer and Dobbin the Difficult Donkey. Huh? Danny Dugan and Dixie Dreamer and
2: Dobbin the Difficult Donkey? Mm Mm-hmm. By day, Danny and Dixie are doctors of dentistry, but they spend a large proportion of their time fighting spies and super criminals with their donkey who has magical powers.
0: You know what I say about Danny Dugan and Dixie Dreamer and Dobbin the Difficult Donkey? What? No, 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 no. Then no, 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 with a side order of you must think I'm stupid. Kid, it's 1947. The war is over. People want to laugh and sing. They don't want to watch a donkey chasing spies around a dental clinic. Why didn't
2: you say so, Mr. Greenberg? Take a look at and Jenny and Ed the Talking Plum. Hilarious knockabout comedy. Take a gander at this one where Ed the Plum says, I'd like to, Jenny, but I got a bad feeling in the stomach of my pit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got a pit joke for you, kid. Knock, knock. Who's there? Avocado. Avocado who? Avocado yourself over to somebody else's office and drive him into bankruptcy. I enjoy being solvent.
2: I don't get it.
0: You know what you can get, kid? Out. Get out. I guess
2: he doesn't want to see this trip with the dog named Snoopy. Oh, well. Today on the show, Bill Griffith's deep dive into his mother's past takes him into the comic books and comic strips of yesteryear. And now he was the basis for Alexander Bumstead, Colin McEnroe.
1: You know, it's not something that's that obvious, but then when someone says it, that I was the basis for Alexander Bumstead, who admittedly is a minor character in Dagwood and Blondie. People will go, oh, that's yeah, I get it now, I see it, I I can see the resemblance. That would be a joke you would only get probably if you'd read a lot of comic strips, which I have and which Bill Griffith has, and of course he's drawn them too. Bill Griffith is here in studio with us. He's the cartoonist who brought to life Zippy the Pinhead. Uh, Zippy the Pinhead is a character who's fond of saying things like, All of life is a blur of Republicans and meat. And can you repeat that in Portuguese? He recently gave voice to a question subconsciously nagging all Americans When do I get my own Large Hadron Collider? Uh, But Bill Griffith has been doing something else recently. Uh, he's been working on a graphic memoir, it's sort of graphic in two senses, too, kind of. And it's called Invisible Ink, My Mother's Love Affair with the Famous Cartoonist. Bill Griffith, as I say, is in studio today. This is something you've mentioned to me a couple of times, and you've mentioned it a, kind of publicly a couple of times, that you were working on this and that, that, that what, that's what it was about. The one thing you didn't really tell people was
3: who the cartoonist was, right? Right. I wanted that to be a little bomb that would go off on publication day. And I guess it has. I haven't felt a lot of fallout from it yet. I haven't heard from any relatives. But um, yes, the the man in question, very famous in his day, completely and utterly forgotten now, was named Lawrence Larrier, L-A-R-I-A-R.
1: When you say in his day, give us a sense. What's, what's the time period here? Um, I mean because in fact you not only tell your mother's story here, you tell Larryer's story from well in advance of when he met your mother, his kind of attempt to come up through the ranks of comic artists
3: uh, of his day. Larryer actually spans the decades from the 20s into the 70s, all the time pushing one idea after another. He had four daily comic strips, all of which flopped one of which lasted four years before it was killed, (laughs) mercifully. Um, It wasn't his metier, shall we say, the Daily Strip. But he did thousands upon thousands of gag cartoons, not of the highbrow New Yorker variety, more of the gals and gimps variety. Um, He did uh, How to Draw Cartoon Books, which were bestsellers. He He was an editor. He's known among all the gag cartoonists of his day as you know the go-to editor the guy you had to please because he put out all these anthologies of best cartoons of the year he was a workaholic beyond that that name. There has to be another name for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ironies of his existence is that his goal kind of is to get that one Dagwood and Blondie, to get that thing that puts you on easy street. You know, not that being a daily cartoonist is really easy street, but to get the one thing that you do and the checks come in and you're all set. And his life was exactly the opposite. He wrote for television a little tiny bit. I think he wrote for radio a little tiny bit. He wrote
3: 16 uh, crime novels, all of which are pretty good. They're not Raymond Chandler, but they're in that that tough guy vein. They're 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 pretty good. Tough guy with purple prose, based
1: on the excerpts that ap- that appear in in balloons throughout this book, and they
3: all involved either a cartoonist detective, or <laughs> they took place in a cartooning environment. <laughs> so, and and so yeah, he. He and he wrote a lot of gags.
1: He wrote gags that could be, in fact, transferred from the printed page to cocktail napkins. Back in an era when that was kind of a thing, right? That there were this, there was yeah. sort of a naughtiness, a naughtiness
3: that transgressed against a whole bunch of norms that, for the most part, don't exist. There, right There was now. a huge, I don't know what to call it, very soft core cartoon market <laughs> and audience. You know, you look in a newsstand in 1935, 1945, you'll see dozens of now completely forgotten gag magazines that featured, you know, big busted gals on the cover and inside lots of secretary jokes and innuendo jokes. And, you know, this was a time when there was very little outlet for that stuff. I think we've given you a little bit of a sense of who he is, but let's go back.
1: Uh, let's backtrack and talk about who, who your parents were. So your dad was a mostly or for a long time, a career military guy, right? Yes. Well,
3: for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah that's a my entire childhood.
1: Yeah. And and that was a life that took him away a lot. He ran an orphanage in in Korea at one point. But he also took you away at one point. I, this is something although we we don't know each other well, but we've known each other since the 1980s. I had no idea that part of your childhood, a year or two occurred in post-war Germany, the kind yes. of ruins of Germany.
3: Yeah, my father um right after right after the war, he was assigned to um duties in Germany. He spent about a year there. When he got back, they wanted to send him again. <laughs> so this time he said, I got to bring my family. Mm-hmm. And he did. So we lived in Germany, mostly in Frankfurt mm-hmm. for two years, from 1949 to 51, I believe. And yes, I I was young enough to think it was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the bombed out buildings behind where I lived, I thought they were a playground. I vaguely knew that there had been a war and that there was something called Nazis and they were bad. Mm. It wasn't talked about. This is a classic case of the adults not talking to the kids. Here I am in postwar Germany and I'm fairly oblivious that the world just went through an incredible period of turmoil. Um, but there we were living in Frankfurt and my father, his job, which I found out much later, was inventorying the stolen material found in castles on the Rhine, in which case, in, in his case, consisted of at least partly categorizing and archiving Queen Victoria's underwear. <laughs> that is, I don't think that's mentioned in the book. He, he told me about this later, partly to tell me that he didn't steal any of it. He wanted me to know he didn't pilfer any of this, but all around him, the other guys who he was working with were stealing like crazy. Um, so all over America, they're a little... Little Queen Victoria's underpants, underpants that are garters, framed in, in dens or whatever. Yes, I think I've been in some of those dens. <laughs> all
1: right, so um, you've got him, and but he's a guy who, first of all, he's literally physically not around. But when he's around, one gets the sense from this book that he's not really around.
3: Yeah, only just before he died, when he was fifty-seven in a in a in a uh, bicycle accident, mm-hmm. did we begin to start talking. Before that, it was. He was the classic withholding father, withholding approval, withholding all kinds of stuff. And he was gone quite a bit. He would go away for a year or two. He'd be deployed to Korea several times. And I do remember him having a sense of humor. I remember some good things. But for the most part, he was pretty distant.
1: Although near the end, I think there are some letters that he's sending you. And they're like these little – Lineage things in this book, Invisible Ink, that jump out. One of them is: Is it possible that you're descended from Uncle Sam? From the
3: oh, I am. <laughs> no, uh, Sam Wilson. This is going back to the 1830s and 40s. Hmm. Was a meat packer, I guess you'd call him, in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and he got the contract to supply meat, among other people, probably to supply meat to the Union Army during the Civil War. All of the boxes that arrived for for to be opened up and cooked, had the stamp U.S. on them. And for some reason, people decided instead of that meaning the United States, it meant Uncle Sam because mm-hmm. that was the return address, U.S. So he became known as Uncle Sam. But 20, did, Twenty years later, was it, when yeah. um, he was the, the Uncle Sam cartoon character mm-hmm. made an appearance. So, yeah, and he's directly related to my mother's side of the family by – a great aunt like five generations back did he look like uncle sam no no <laughs> not in the slightest <laughs> that was an entire that was entirely um thomas nast's imagination the cartoonist the, we're talking to bill griffith uh, he's the cartoonist who gave life to uh, zippy the
1: pinhead probably the underground comic that has made the longest journey above ground. Also one of the few examples of mass market Dadaism. I'm trying to think of another example. Um, Family uh, Circus. Family family Circus. That's right. It's not well known that that's what that is. We did a whole show about Dadaism and I can't believe I didn't think to have you on that show. Yeah,
3: I listened to that. I was fuming the whole you fuming, time. You were yeah, just, yeah, like, fuming? You were just like throwing chairs around the, yeah, the exactly. house and going, well, I can't metaphor. believe I'm not on the show. Yeah. Well,
1: um, well, you're on this show. Okay. All right. So the book is called Invisible Ink My Mother's Secret Love Affair with a Famous Cartoonist. We both have left handed fathers and mother's name Barbara. <laughs>
3: oh, really? Uh,
1: yeah. At least you draw your father left handed. I assume he was. He is left handed. Yeah. yeah. This is the kind of thing you notice if you're a left handed person. Like, even if you're looking at a cartoon strip, you go, wait a minute, that guy's left handed. Um, how did you know he was left? Did I say he was left No, the you book? draw him. You draw him left-handed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm okay. telling you, that's the kind of weird obsessive. Yeah. If you're a left-handed person, you well, not not everybody's like this, but you tend to see that if it happens. So no, you don't say that in the book, but you draw him left-handed and I, I'm the kind of person who Okay. like John Stewart, to me, is like this left-handed guy who's very funny. Jerry Seinfeld, also left-handed. Oh, yeah. So uh, if I'm watching a movie, you know, I I never talk in movies unless I have to just lean over and say to my significant other, Um, (laughs) left-handed. Your mother seems like, even prior to the meeting of this man who's going to be her paramour, and we should say that in in addition to having been, I mean, he was kind of what you would – probably not unfairly call a hack, right? He's just a guy just cranking out as much work as he possibly can, most of it as commercial as he can, commercial as he can possibly make Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, yes. So hack is not an unfair word, uh, although the other part of him is that he appears to be this intellectual on the side. You know, he's a guy who would rather go see a Mondrian yeah. exhibit he, than—
3: he, he had a classic bifurcated personality. He was kind of a classic New York intellectual guy. Introduced my mother to the art world, which she was unfamiliar with. Um, they went to Broadway plays. They went to museums. They didn't just have a hot sheet affair. This was a a love story. Right. It's a full-blown relationship. It
1: is yes. – uh, and a deep, deep love, although also a very, very sexual relationship. Um, yep. Yep. So, you're, But your mother, prior even to meeting this guy, is – a kind of thwarted intellectual one senses. I mean, somebody who's who really wants to be a writer and is belonging to writers' groups and she's trying to live the life of the mind in Levittown, New York.
3: Yes, can't remember where it traces back to what the earliest attempts she made at writing were, but they would probably be from maybe seven, eight, nine years before she met Larrier. So I think she got it from her mother. Her mother was. totally unpublished writer. She wrote poetry and she wrote satirical stories. I've read a whole bunch of them. She was quite good, but never made any attempt to get published. My mother probably got the bug from her mother and tried very hard to get published and had small success when she met him, but very little. I think a big part of the appeal of the relationship at the beginning was that he was a published writer. He could teach her things about writing, she answered an ad in Newsday, Newsday, New York newspaper, Long Island newspaper, for a part-time secretary. That's how the affair began. And it said his name, and it said it was a job involving his writing. It didn't say anything about cartooning. Mm-hmm. She was primarily a secretary who took dictation and made grammatical and syntax corrections for him. She writes in her diary that, That was really what she did. That was her contribution. She made his crime novels grammatically and syntactically correct. I should say this. I haven't said it yet. This book is.
1: It really is. I'm not just saying this to be ingratiating. It really is kind of spellbinding. I mean, it, it it is a hard book to put down once you start it. It's done in recognizably the style of Bill Griffith. If you're a fan of Zippy the Pinhead, a lot of the artistic chops are are very similar. But then, of course, there's no Zippy. There's no none of that kind of stuff. A little uh, Zippy. A little bit of Zippy, but it, it's it's really. And but and I really found it. Once I started, I really didn't want to stop reading it, which is, of course, that's what you want with a book. So it's so many different things at once, and we'll try to talk about as many of those things as we can. But ultimately, you're going to have to do this uh, yourself, get the book and, and read it. It's called Invisible Link, My Mother's Secret Affair with a Famous Cartoonist by by Bill Griffith. So one of the things that it is is this really strange – well, actually, let's before we even get to that, let's, let's talk about uh, the big reveal because this this is – one of those kind of the strange moments. So your father dies in this bicycle accident and you and your sister and your mother are out in that part of the hospital where you sit and get the bad news and they get the
3: bad news. And, and then 15 minutes later, do I have it right? What yeah. did, she says what? The, the doctor had just come into the waiting room and said to my mother, we didn't save him. I'm sorry. We looked at each other, my mother, my sister and I, and went into a kind of expected shock which comes before grief. We were just basically in shock, kind of numb. A small amount of time passes. My mother is sobbing in, the, in her chair. We're all kind of sobbing. And she lifts her head and she looks at my sister and I and she says, I have to tell you something now because I would never be able to tell you again later. I had a long and very happy relationship with a man you knew slightly, Lawrence Larrier. And that was it. My sister and I looked at each other. We made no comment. <laughs> I was in shock. I, I, it was two huge shocks delivered in 15 minutes. And I never asked her a word about it right up until the day she died.
1: I, I feel like I need to ask the Terry Gross question, you know. Why do you think she chose this moment? I mean, the, part of the answer is there in her statement. If I don't tell you now, I'll never be able to tell
3: you. But I don't really know what that means. Well, when you're having – you know, this is a classic kind of case where when you're having deep – feelings churning within you. You don't distinguish between what they are. Mm. Grief, guilt, all that was coming out of her. And at the same time, she felt she had to confess. I think that was it. It was just a turmoil of emotions spilling out of her.
1: And there's almost also, I mean, it's like one of those old jokes, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is your father's just died. The good news is I have had some happiness in my life. Exactly. <laughs> and-
3: <laughs> I was 28 years old at the time. Okay? Mm. I was living in San Francisco. I, you know, I'd flown out to... New York and to Levittown for the for the death of my father and for his funeral then I went right back to underground comics and I was in my early stages of it I thought about what she said quite a bit it was this back-of-the-head little thing that was always there two years later I did a one-page strip about the affair my mother was still alive larrier was still alive so I disguised them I gave them different names And it was part of a six-page story. It was a one section of a six-page story. And I thought that was it. I'd I'd done my bit. Mm -hmm. I had that thing that was percolating in the back of my head. I had now let out and I didn't have to think about it anymore. (laughs) Little did I know. Little did I know. We were just talking
1: in the elevator on the way up about how I, I also wrote a memoir about my father. And what when you do this, so what you're doing is this kind of archaeological research into this dig, except that the, all of the dead Native Americans in this midden in this dig are your family, you know, and you're you're like pulling things up and kind of dusting the dirt off them and going, oh, my God. <laughs> this is, and so they're like all these little weird booby traps. I found the same thing, that like I would open up a notebook or an appointment book, and there would be and a little booby trap. Tra- a bomb would go off and so there are odd little things i mean just for an for example You know, she says to you there in the hospital, a man you knew slightly. Well, one of the slight ways that you knew him was while she was his factotum, his gal Friday, his biggest meal ticket, his biggest payday, what were these anthologies of the best cartoons of the year, which involved, you know, some of the really heavyweight names, the people that maybe he aspired to be but was not. And then on one occasion, you as a boy helped your mother basically curate this thing and pick their cartoons
3: because he was too busy. In effect, I did pick the cartoons. This was a series of hardcover books that came out every year from 1941 to 1971, I believe. It was Larry Bread and Butter. He was the editor. He asked every gag cartoonist in America to send them their 10 best, what they thought of as their 10 best, and then he picked a few out of those. In those days, there were not Kinko's on the corner, so these people sent the original art Okay, so one day this is in the. You have to remember this is in the in the world in which Larry had eighteen different projects going at once. So 1957, the first year my mother and he began their affair. I come home from school. Strewn all over the living room floor are original gag cartoons, original art. I spot Virgil Parch, my favorite cartoonist. I can't believe what? what how did this happen? Am I dreaming? And she says, "Well, you know." My boss, my new boss, didn't have time this year to, to edit these. He said, Barbara, you do it. I have to make dinner. Why don't you, you know, look look them over. While she was making dinner, I piled up the ones I liked and the ones I didn't like. Those then became the best <laughs> cartoons of the year, 1957. <laughs> Six months later, I'm in a bookstore mm-hmm. and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, that's not Lawrence Larry. Or that's me, the editor. And how old were you? I was 13. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but see, that's a story you knew. You knew that story, except that you didn't know the rest of that story, which is no. why, why your mother would be in a position. I mean, you knew that she was his factotum, but you didn't understand really why she would be in a position of really almost intimate trust. You know, like, you get this thing done. It's the most important thing I'm doing all year. You get it done.
3: Well, you have to remember, this is a 16-year monogamous affair, yeah. both faithful to each other during the, that time. I have all the evidence I need for that from her diaries. And during this time, she has to keep it secret. People always ask me, what did my father know? I have to think at some point he did know.
1: Well, he he made withering remarks about he would Mr. make He Larry. would
3: call Larrier Mr. Larrier in a, in a sarcastic tone. Make sure he pays you in cash, he would say. And she left the door. And to top it all off, Larry, early on in my mother's affair with him, gave her a caricature, a self-caricature of him, which she then framed and put on her bedroom wall facing the bed. Mm-hmm. So my mother and father in bed looking <laughs> down the bed <laughs> towards their feet, they see Larry floating on the wall. We're going to take a break in just a second. But before we do
1: that, I, I mean this – so this – A lot of this book, you finally open up some boxes that belong to your mother and you do find a novel that she wrote that's a thinly disguised roman, a clef about this, and there's you know a lot of other material that she helps you kind of piece together this story and it's you know it's like the story of a. a, there are other stories of long running monogamous affairs in which the people experienced real love and and maybe a kind of sexual gratification that they haven't ever gotten anywhere else but it's hard too right you can't really explore each other the way that maybe you would if you had unfettered amounts of time and so one of the little centerpieces in this and I, I bring it up because I ran into you last time I saw you we were both at a production of Guys and Dolls at the at speed Opera has, and you said some cryptic thing. And I think your wife Diane said something like, oh, yes, well, you'll see what this is all about soon enough. And I think you might have mentioned that one of the songs in the show was your mother's favorite song or favorite Broadway song or favorite – and it becomes a little centerpiece in the book. Just
3: tell quickly the story of, of Larry mm-hmm. and, and she going to the show. Well, this was the original production of Guys and Dolls, so whenever that was in the late 50s, maybe mid-50s. And my mother, I imagine some of the scenes. Obviously, with Larry, right? I don't have a, a little a fly on the wall to tell me, so I have to imagine based on her writing her diaries. She said, "Let's not just stay in the hotel room. They had their affair was all conducted in a hotel room on the Shelton Hotel, Forty Third and Lexington, New York. Um, she said, Let's go out. Let's do something fun." So she says, "Well, I I know a guy. I can get tickets to Guys and Dolls." Oh, she, she says, "That's incredible." They go see Guys and Dolls. My mother becomes infatuated and obsessed with all the songs, and especially Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat, which has a kind of double meaning right there (laughs) for her relationship with Larry. When she leaves, she buys the album. She brings the album. This is is how Larry entered my life through a side door. He was, in effect, my shadow father. He was a cartoonist. (laughs) He loved art. He introduced my mother to not only the guys and dolls, which I then heard played over and over again, but Picasso. All of a sudden, a Picasso book appears on the coffee table. That was because Larrier Mm -hmm. got it there. My father had zero interest in art of any kind. My mother was a smart woman and knew a lot about writing but not a lot about art, and Larrier introduced that to her.
1: You're listening to a previously recorded uh, interview and previously aired show with Bill Griffith. The reason we're reviving it is because we want you to know that he's uh, in town tonight uh, at 7 p.m. at the Mark Twain house. He's going to be talking about this book, Invisible Ink. We recommend that you go to it. Uh, This is part of their bookmark series. And uh, we'll be back with more of our conversation with Bill Griffin. Sit
0: down, sit down, you're rocking a boat. And the devil will drag you under with a soul so heavy you'd never float. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking a boat. Sit down, you're rocking, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking a boat.
1: You're listening to a show which we originally aired a few months ago. It's a conversation with Zippy the Pinhead cartoonist with uh, Bill Griffith. I've known him for years and years and years, uh, but like everybody else, I didn't know the story that he tells in this uh, memoir that he's put out, a memoir that he's going to be talking about tonight at the Mark Twain House in Hartford. Uh, That's at 7 p.m. So let's delve back in and hear more about Bill and his mother and her incredible secret.
0: Sit down, you're rocking a boat. People all said, "Sit, sit down, sit down, you're rocking a boat."
1: And the devil I've told Bill that after this show, you should go home and go into a room and draw the blinds, and then get on YouTube and listen to the Don Henley reggae version of "Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat." Because you'll you'll
3: never be the same afterwards. I, anyway. I, I'm I'm dreading the moment, but yes. I, I I'll do it. It's going to change you. You of all people, you
1: can't shrink from no. kitchen bad culture. Hey, I, I mean, listened you've... to
3: William Shatner psychedelic album at
1: least once. <laughs> The, you know, the Ben Folds one, is pretty good. I mean, the William Shatner. What's it called? It's called, it's some joke about him, too. I can't remember what yeah. the Even the name is some joke about him. I'll, I'll look it up. It's actually not bad. There's a really good thing he does with Henry Rollins. All right, so we're talking about Invisible Ink, And so let's talk about, I mean, in some ways, this is Zippy meets Freud. I mean, I've written a memoir, but you're writing a book that's really, really difficult because you're really having to deal with your mother as an erotic figure. You're having to recreate... On your drafting table, her in the embrace uh, of this man, I don't know if it's even possible to talk about what that's like psychically, but first of all, something I'm sure you didn't go into without a certain amount of trepidation.
3: Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The dread in doing that is that you become in any way excited by this material, (laughs) shall we we say, okay? It did not happen. I have to say it did not happen. That may be... Because I have a really good repression device that I inherited from my father. Who mm-hmm. knows? But yes, to draw your mother having sex mm-hmm. several times is a challenge. And I put it off as long as I could <laughs> when I was doing the book. I think I went beyond that moment and then came back. I think it was very short. After, shortly after I did it though, either the next day or the day after. I had a dream, which I recount in the book, in which my mother appears in a sleeping bag Mm -hmm. all zipped up on my drawing table. I come down to the drawing table. I tap her on the shoulder. She wakes up, gets out of the sleeping bag and says, that was refreshing. Get back to work. (laughs) And I took that as her approval of my project.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to talk about that approval. So, uh, by the way, we're going along here. If anybody uh, has a comment and question, you can tweet us at WNPR Collins. So there's always a struggle when you're doing a memoir about th- that whole question of permission. Um, how many people do you have to talk to to get permission? If you have any living relatives, do you have to talk to them? What if they say no? What if they want creative control over scenes that involve them? And then the dead. The dead have to, at some level, give you permission, right? I mean, the dead, not literal permission, but it's some, you have to make some kind of psychic connection with the dad well, so
3: that you feel permitted. You have to remember my mother left me two journals, big, big thick journals which were in effect diaries mm-hmm. on the one in which she talks about her affair. She wrote on the front of it in ballpoint ink for Bill and Nancy. Mm-hmm. Me and my sister. I never saw this when she was alive. Just before she died, literally the day before she died, she pointed to a a filing cabinet in her living room and said, I feel bad that you have to dismantle my apartment. Throw everything away, but keep that. And she pointed at the filing cabinet. In the filing cabinet were all of her writing and her diaries and what amounted to a confession of her affair, which I found in the back of one of the diaries. So I think I have permission. Yeah. I think I have permission to tell the story. I want to say one thing. She had a unpublished novel. That was a big chunk of the research that I did on this book Mm. in which the affair was given two chapters. (laughs) All the names changed. Everybody in the book, it's a family saga, goes from the 20s to the late 60s. And everybody in the book, I can write down to the least important character. I know just who they all were. Mm -hmm. Their names um, are thinly disguised for me. So she left me that as well. And in that, I got would what, what amount to scenes between her and Larry that had emotional resonance because they were novelistic and sex scenes as well. So I used that and I, when I do, in the book I refer to it so you know what I'm doing. I used two, two devices. One was to tell the about the affair through her depictions of it in the novel and the other was from her journal and diaries my imaginings of what things might have been. You know, it's interesting because last night I saw Christopher Shin's uh, play
1: in Opening in Time, and it does involve a couple who fell in love while married to other people uh, and then take 30 years to do anything about it. So it was kind of like reading this book and seeing that play. There was kind of an uh, interesting kind of back and forth uh, going on about sort of how these stories these very, very human, profoundly human and and profoundly, if not universal, very common kinds of stories, how they play out. What's interesting about your mother's, one of the many things that's interesting about your mother's story and about that confession, as you call it, is, and it's why I would think that she would be perfectly fine with this book and, and with this project, is that she wants the reader of this confession to know Although my recollection is that it seems to be addressed to someone, that there's a you and you don't know who the you is,
3: right? Yeah, you're, t- you're talking about a confession, what I call a confession, which was like a, an eight-page type written papers that fell out of the back of her diary after yeah. I, I didn't know it was there for a while. And then I, I saw it one day and it's her speaking. When she, When you come to that section in the book, mm. you go from my imaginings and her – Versions through her novel of what was going on, you come to her voice speaking loud and yeah, clear verbatim I, I just I reproduced it facsimile. it's right. just the exact type right, pages. Yeah, right down to the serif font yeah. um, um, right right down to the cross outs and everything else yes, so what comes
1: through is her desire for someone to understand that she has loved and been loved yeah. that that she has contrary to maybe evidence, contrary to the evidence of her life, she has been truly loved and loved in a way, people who have great love affairs typically do believe that they are experiencing something that's not only extraordinarily with, extraordinary within the scope of their own lives, but with extraordinary within the scope of human existence. And that kind of comes through, right? That in terms of emotion, fulfillment, gratification, soulmate, sex, the whole thing, that it's all there, that she got it. And she, you know, I mean, if you think about sort of a legitimate relationship, a relationship that's out in the open, you have sort of a lot of ways in which basically it gets ratified by the world, right? Starting with your wedding. You have a wedding. You know a bunch of people come, watch you get married, and you walk through life with a kind of ratification of this relationship. but for her, the most important mm-hmm. relationship of her life is never ratified mm-hmm. and that's what comes out at me i I first of all think that that typescript
3: is a very, very moving document, and there's an urgency about it and You have to remember my mother was a writer, mm-hmm. not a famous published writer, but a writer, so when she begins this confession, it's kind of it starts out kind of stumblingly. It starts out uh, almost stream of consciousness. But within a paragraph or two, her writer self takes over and she makes a compelling, emotionally available, beautifully written description of her love for this man and her condition because she wrote it in 1972 right after my father died. And this was a this was a crucial moment in the affair. What was going to happen now? The, her husband is dead. Can she, Larry or leave? He was married. Can he leave his wife? Can they, can they marry? Can this relationship take on a whole new level, a whole new meaning? Which it didn't, but mm-hmm. she didn't know that. And she's writing from that point of view. One other thing I want to say. Yeah. I'm in the process. This occurred to me in a kind sort of a lightning bolt moment <laughs> a few weeks ago. Okay, I have her manuscript. It's a 384-page novel called Departed Acts, the title coming from an Emily Dickinson poem. Why don't I make it available on CreateSpace on Amazon.com mm-hmm. so people can, if they want to, they can buy a copy. So I'm in the process of doing that. We're going to take a break in a second and I, I'm, we're going to veer
1: a little bit away from this because I don't want to like completely... I want to give people uh, lots of things to discover in this book, but a question that occurred to me was, OK, so your entire career has been, I mean, you you started as, as a truly underground cartoonist influenced by un- underground comics, uh, underground comic books and comic strips. And, you know, you, your first venues or places like the Village Voice. So your take on, a, 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 I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. A lot of your comedy, a lot of the outlook of your work is a kind of take on kitsch and crap, right? That Zippy is an enthusiast of kitsch and crap. He doesn't know that it's kitsch and crap. He, he thinks it's I'm saying kitsch and crap as opposed yeah. to kitchen crap. But anyway, that tawdry, cheesy, <laughs> bad culture and bad food Which is exactly like what Larry was well, that's, producing that's all of his life. Yeah, that's where I'm going. And I'm wondering yeah. so, like, sometimes when I'm talking to you, first of all, I've been very uncomfortable telling you that my Mother had an affair with Mort Walker, uh, but let's <laughs> just lay it out there. But, you know, if I'm talking to you, I, like, if I'll like I won't want to bring up a sort of commercial cartoonist because I don't know what you're going to think of that person or I'll be a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But now I'm sort of thinking, I'm wondering if this excited in you any sympathy or empathy for – a friend of mine once said that the movie Ishtar was – the theme of the movie is that the struggle of the bad artist is every bit as difficult as the struggle of the good artist. Does it excite in you any sympathy for a guy like Larry er, to see his life laid out this
3: way? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Early on in my research, thank God for the internet on Larrier. <laughs> uh, I mean I had a few books that I had probably inherited from my mother. But, and we should <laughs> say that you went to Syracuse University where his works that's, are stored. And that's you, what I'm saying. You were yes. the only
1: person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you took away my oh, joke. Sorry,
3: sorry. So I, I discovered just by you know Googling, I found out that his papers were at Syracuse University Library. <laughs> so I drove up there. I walked in and I said, can I look at the Larrier papers? I'm looking at them. And I'm, there's boxes, great stuff. And I'm bringing boxes back to the librarian. And I, I, it occurs to me, I, why are they here? And she couldn't answer. She looked up something. <laughs> I don't, no connection between Larrier and Syracuse University could be found. And I said, how many times have they been taken out? How many, how many people have looked at these papers? She said, you're the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy is really, really forgotten. And I do have tremendous sympathy for him. I mean, he's a cartoonist. He's not a great cartoonist, but he produced an enormous body of work and he tried really hard. His goal was always to make a buck, which of course is at the core of his failure. Milton Kniff and uh, Al Capp, yes, they were after a buck, but they had something that came out of their guts, something mm-hmm. to put on paper that was coming out of who they were. Larry was just trying to make money. I mean, one of his books,
1: one of his kind of comedy books was called How Green Was My Sex Life, which seems like something even that Zippy would say. Yeah, he did
3: parody (laughs) books. He did Oh, Dr. Kinsey, which was a (laughs) photo book of women being shocked at being asked pointed sexual questions. He did a traveling salesman's gag book where – it was all photographs, and the the traveling salesman was him. Right, him just that was one of the major him, <laughs> finds of my research. Him mugging basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's, this, he's this guy. He's like a cartoon, like a cartoon character, you know, praying to secretaries to let him pass the door so he can make a sale. That came out a year before my mother met him. Mm. What would she have thought if she had seen that booklet? Right.
1: Well, maybe she made an honest (laughs) man. All right. So we have to take a break. Bill Griffith is with us. We'll talk more when we come back.
2: Too late to pitch Tug Transom and his Tatlin Tater Tots. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Dan Knot, Charles, Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by High and Lois. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff redrawn as characters from Steve Roper and Mike Nomad, visit our website, wnpr.org Colin. On tomorrow's show, we're back live with the Nose. And now, back to Colin.
1: Bill Griffith did laugh at the Steve Roper Mike Nomad reference <laughs> I think one of the, one of the things I like about um, Mike Mike Nomad is that he says the word um just J I S T actually it's written that way oh. obviously
3: just yeah. just yeah I, uh, I, I just can't do it yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, so the book is Invisible Link, uh, my mother's secret love affair with a famous cartoonist by Bill Griffith, who's sitting right here. Um, so the the framing device for this book
3: is a trip that you take to not Winston Salem High Point, right? High Point, well, North Carolina. Uh, Winston Salem was the ultimate goal. I, I was, yeah, the, the train Amtrak goes to High Point, so I got off at High Point and I took a bus. And so my, that's and that's where your uncle, uh, my, uh, my uncle Al, yeah, my. My mother's brother, the 91 years old, the only surviving member member of that generation, spent all his life in and salem I go into a little bit of it in detail in the book as to why, he's, since he's a Brooklyn boy. But um, I got a letter from him three some odd years ago that spurred this book, which I didn't know at the time. And the letter was, I thought, was kind of asking me to come down for a visit. It was saying, I'm getting old. I'm not going to be traveling a lot. And I took the hint, and I came visit to visit in the course of visiting him uh, one evening. His wife, my aunt Nell, who was very sick at the time, asked if I thought my mother ever had affairs this just, just came out of her this is a Baptist church lady, and she's mm-hmm. saying, "Do you think Barbara ever had affairs when you were a kid?" and I said "Yes." Mm-hmm. And you say, well, what about with Ed Emschweiler, your next-door neighbor? He's a famous science fiction illustrator. I said, that would be very dangerous for her. Next door, No, mm. I don't think so. But, of course, there was Lawrence Larry, the cartoonist, and they looked at me and said, who? <laughs> and I went home, that back to my hotel room that night. I wasn't staying with them because she was so ill. And this book came to me all in one giant lightning bolt from above, that this was my graphic novel. This was what... I'd been sort of wondering, do I have one of these things in me? Do I have a book in me? Is Zippy the only thing I'm going to be doing? And it all came to me in one one evening, really. You know,
1: was- speaking of Zippy um- – I think I have a hard job that it's it's pretty relentless but I know I I know you I've known other cartoonists Gary Trudeau is my freshman freshman counselor in college he was already a cartoonist I think daily cartoonists have about as relentless and pounding a creative existence as there can be it's why people like Bill Watterson and Burke Brathod either quit or drop out or Gary Larson or take time off or whatever it's just I mean in the three minutes that I stepped out of the studio to go get something and come back in you slid a zippy strip out of an envelope and started working on it. Uh, I mean, it's, it is – it is. I don't know how you can write – it must have been very difficult to write a book, to think about anything else given what the demand is of coming up with a funny,
3: workable idea every day and then turning it into visual art. Yeah. Invisible Ink was was done on weekends <laughs> <laughs> completely, all weekends. Um, I think of doing my daily strip it seems to be a natural rhythm for me mm-hmm. when I was when it was first proposed to me in 1985 the San Francisco Examiner said how would you like to do zippy daily just for them and I said whoa you mean like a real job mm-hmm. uh, let me have a few minutes to think about that and I tried it and after about 6 months I began to get into some sort of rhythm it felt right mm-hmm. so it must just fit. It must just be a fit with the way I work and think. I think of the Daily Strip as a a diary, mm-hmm. a soapbox, um, an outlet, and I think of the Zippy and the way I do my Daily Strip as a vehicle for pretty much anything. I don't really place a lot of limitations on it. No. Well, we know that as, <laughs> as readers, we know that you haven't. So learned. I'm not. I'm not. In other words, I'm. I'm not holding much back. Because aside from graphic sex and four-letter words, which someday may be allowed in daily newspapers as they truly die away into the sunset. Um, I can do whatever I want. I don't worry about. Uh, there's an editor at King Features, my my syndicate, but his editing consists of saying like, "Do you really want to run this?" Kansas City readers might not. Be my God, get it. And mm-hmm. I say, no, I really want to run it. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, we are, we have limited amount of time left, but I
1: feel I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Donald Trump simply because you and or Zippy saw Trump coming maybe. I mean, Trump is he's rarely – I mean, it's been, for a long time, Trump has been in Zippy's thoughts. Uh, is that because – I mean, does he sort of fit in the surreal universe somehow of he, Zippy the Pinhead?
3: Yeah, he's a larger-than-life cartoon character. Mm. Uh, he – He's not a politician he's not even a traditional rich guy. he is a he he bears his his emotional life every time he opens his mouth mm-hmm. he He's funny because he takes himself so seriously there's no one who is funnier than someone that de- demands love all the time it's you know it's a, he, I can't remember when I first started making fun of Trump, but, of course, it's not just his personality. It's the hair, Mm -hmm. admittedly. Trump is a great gift to cartoonists especially because we get to draw the hair.
1: And it it puts you in a difficult position. I, I suppose to a certain degree we're all in this position, which is that Trump is sort of guaranteed employment for us in a certain way, you know, on the other hand. We would hate to watch his ascendance never stop. We want it to stop at some point, right? Well, I
3: think his, his neediness, his, his, his deep neediness is going to do him in. And I can see it happening. I can see he's already beginning to look a little bored with this. He's not, he's not too happy if his numbers go down. Mm. I think that's going to be his, his exit as his numbers go down. He's going to leave way before, way before they go down to 2%.
1: And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, I mean, one of the things that distinguishes Zippy and distinguishes you is his love affair with this American landscape that I think is kind of vanishing, you know, the the sort of Berlin turnpike type landscape of – Diners and things with big, like Paul Bunyan statues and big dog heads and dinosaur heads and sort of commercial art that's way outsized and gargantuan. And I mean, does does the gradual homogenization of the American landscape worry you that there's not going to be that kind of found thing anymore?
3: Yeah, I like to call it Brand X America. That's that's the, the America that I like the the anti McDonald's, the slow food, not fast food. There's a uh, diner in. Dayville, Connecticut, called Zips Diner, of course. I, I go there whenever I drive by, and right next to it is a Burger King. And I, I asked somebody at the counter once, how come you drove into Zips and not into Burger King? And they said, well, this is real food. Mm-hmm. That was his reason. This is real food. So, metaphorically speaking, the Paul Bunyan muffler men and the giant ducks and the giant bowling pins, that's real food. Real food for me.
1: Yeah, I I do think – it's funny because we're working on a show right now about the voice, the literary voice of uh, eastern Connecticut, although the show keeps falling apart, which maybe says something. But uh, in a way, you're part of that too. You live uh, east of the river uh, or right around the river anyway. And eastern Connecticut is like one of those final surreal places in America. I mean America may – ultimately turn
3: into brand A or whatever, but there's a lot of brand X out there east of the river. Yes. uh, Connecticut is loaded with it, and New England in general is loaded with it. And um, when I moved here in 1998 from San Francisco, my eyes were popping. You know, I just, (laughs) my strip suddenly had a drastic change for uh, content, and uh, uh, I'm still doing it. Well, that's our show for today. Uh,
1: Tomorrow is The Nose, and we've got an exciting Nose panel for you that includes James Hanley and Teresa Kramer and Kate Russian. So meanwhile, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. That includes uh, Kion Wolf. Uh, She's the one who makes it sound so good. Uh, And our regular producers, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea, our tweet master, Greg Hill, all of our wonderful uh, interns. And we want to remind you that the reason that we kind of dusted the show back off for you today is that uh, Bill Griffith, uh, the protagonist of the show is going to be tonight at the Mark Twain House at 7 p.m. in Hartford. You, you should consider uh, just showing up for it, or you could probably call them in advance. Uh, go to themarktwainhouse.org to learn more about it, or you can call... 2470998 area code 860 uh, it's a free event it's followed by a book sale and signing uh, probably a good idea to get that reservation anyway join us back uh, for the news tomorrow uh, i think we're going to be talking about um, an unusual calendar which shows women as they truly are uh, so be with us for that and thanks for listening today
0: all
2: a deep at prior. Yeah.
0: All right, hit me with some more ideas. Okay, there's this
2: overweight orange cat and his owner. No. Uh, there's a Viking and his fellow warriors. Nope. A young boy and his stuffed cat who comes to life. No, no, no. Is that all you've got, kid? A woman named Kathy. She says, Ack a lot. I don't know. I got nothing.